I think I might have gotten this from Lionel Bailey's introduction, but the but the ego in this tradition is understood almost the opposite of how it's understood in the American inheritance of it. The very positivist, you know, uh, modern, uh, you know, imperial capitalist, individualist, uh, you know, subjectivist kind of approach to ego psychology. That's the American approach. Uh, the, the Lacanian one, the, the, that, that ego is not a substantive or concrete or, or sort of like, it, it, it's, 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 it's making up for, for, a, for a dilemma, for a series of contradictions and problems. Um, it's, it's, it is the, the ego is a fissure or a scab or a, or a wound, um, that is sort of like a, a, a trying to cope with, uh, the, these breaks in, in existence, um, which is utterly, yeah, to the complete opposite of, of this idea that it's like this wholeness that we can get back to this other, the, which is by the way, also there's like fascist undertones to the idea of like a, an authentic wholeness, like that, oh, we've just been removed from that. And now we can just ex excavate back to it, you know, through, through the therapeutic process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree. And so here's, here's how I would state it though. So <clears throat> I, I, even though he doesn't really give him credit, Lacan was influenced by Sartre's work on the ego, the transcendence of the ego, mm. and for Sartre and for Lacan, the ego is not something intrinsic to consciousness. It's something that consciousness builds from exterior exteriority, from external things, right? It builds the sense of egoic consciousness out of the external world. And so for Lacan, it's my reflection in the mirror. I'm not that reflection in the mirror. And that reflection in the mirror is not intrinsic to consciousness. But what happens is that the reflection in the mirror gives consciousness a sense of wholeness because now I'm like before that the baby is just this fragmented body, right? It's it's helpless because it has no motor control, no unified control of its body. It's just kind of, you know, uh, this is polymorphous, uh, per, uh, perverse, right? Where uh, there the the body hasn't gained a sense of wholeness and it hasn't been given parts through language right language or we would call it society right it imposes you can't show this part of your body this part of your body's for this that like right the, the body's not cut up through signifiers it's, it's not interpreted and so the first thing that happens is that the uncoordinated infant who is suffering from this fragmented body it sees itself in the mirror, it makes the identification and it goes, oh, that's me. And through that, it gets a sense of wholeness because there's an image it can latch onto, right? And it's actually through this that it's able to start gaining control over itself. And that's the thing with the imaginary though, it's all tied up with a sense of wholeness. So aggressivity is, an, a, funda is a fundamental aspect of this whole imaginary order. Because the imaginary order is all about gaining that sense of wholeness, right? Through various images, through things you identify with. Well, say you, you meet somebody and they're, they're very much like you. Well, you're, you have this aggressive reaction to them because you feel like they're taking some part of you and you're not whole. Now you're fragmented again. You're lacking. And uh, so aggressivity is built into 
um, the ego and built into the imaginary because anything that is there to destabilize the ego or, oh, now you're lacking, you're not complete, right? That's met with aggression or aggressivity. It makes it a aggression for Lacan is just like what we call aggression, like violent outbursts. But aggressivity is this more structural, fundamental thing that has to do with anybody attacking your ego or you feeling that somebody's taken your sense of identity. Um, and yet at the same time, right, it, at first somebody who's very similar to you, you meet them with aggressivity because you feel like they're a threat to your identity. And yet if one of you gives, right, it, it, a lot of the times friendships are forged out of this and it's somebody you, uh, you come to love, right? Like, whole thing with love and hate, the thin line right here in in when it comes to the ego. So if they so, are like you, they can actually come to reaffirm your existence because they've already made those identifications for themselves. So at first it seems like they're a threat to your identity, but if you come to identify with each other, you reflect each other in a way that's positive or affirmative. And so you can actually come to love this person because they're just reflecting the image of yourself that you want to have back to you. Great. And, and so this, how does that tie into, to f the idea of like fundamental fantasy and, and what is the fundamental fantasy? Like if, if we're talking about the imaginary, the real and the symbolic, what is a fundamental fantasy in relation to, to those three things? Okay. Well, that's, I'm glad you, you uh, went there because I, I definitely wanted to talk about fantasy tonight. So this is great. So let me see. I'm not looking at YouTube right now. Um, on the board, you might want to put up the formula for fundamental fantasy. Okay. You remember, it's the bard S, the bard subject, and then the little diamond-shaped lozenge, and then the little lowercase a. Like that? Let me see. I'm... There's a lag here. Hold on. Yeah. So money sign diamond little a. Um, sh do I need more room? Should I erase the uh, the imaginary symbolic and real? Hold on. On the video, you're just now getting to the board. No, that's fine. But should I erase the uh, the stuff in the middle of the board or? Yeah. Oh yeah. You can take the three orders off now. Okay. There so you I, I just built this shelf but it's not nailed down yet because I'm going to paint it tomorrow. Uh -huh. So it just, I wanted to explain that for the people who might've noticed how I, markers keep falling off of it because <laughs> it keeps yeah. sliding out and they fall through. Anyway. Okay. So what we're going to do, we're going to touch briefly on the bar. There, there's three components to this, right? For Lacan, this is fundamental fantasy or the formula for fundamental fantasy. Now this gets trickier when we start talking about the clinical structures, which I know you want me to go into that so much, but we'll have to do it another time. Cause again, I'm not really prepared to go in depth with, with the clinical structures, but for Lacan, he talked about these various clinical structures and you have neurosis and then under neurosis, you have uh, obsessional neurosis or hysteria. You also have perversion and you also have psychosis, right? Um, so the hysteric and the obsessive and the pervert 
they all have different structures to their fundamental fantasies. However, the one that's up on the board right now, Bard S, diamond-shaped A, that also is the obsessive's fundamental fantasy. And Lacan thinks that the obsessive fundamental fantasy, at the most abstract, broad, structural level, is the fantasy is the formula for fantasy, fundamental fantasy as such, right? It's, it, it gets at the bare bones of it. But when you get into the, the, the meat, the details of the differences between obsessive, hysteric, and pervert, you're going to find three different formulas for fundamental fantasy. And so maybe at some point in the future we'll come back and get into that. Material. And so, you know, I, I get that you're not going to go into it further. And like I said last time, folks, and if you don't remember this, getting a Lacanian to talk about anything Lacan related in any detail is very difficult. If you ever want to have fun and you hear someone drop in Lacanian uh, uh, jargon, just start asking them what they're talking about and keep pushing in because beyond Michael Downs, I've never found a person who really can without getting outside of the jargon because it's they're so in it, they can't get outside of it. And, and it's because they haven't spent enough time outside of grad school talking to you know normal people. Anyway... Uh, or because they're too afraid of uh, you know fellow academics trying to take them down. It's like academia for for people who are in really niche fields, especially in the humanities, can often just be like a hotbed of cancel culture. But it's like a weird kind of cancel culture where it's like in academic journals and people trying to be like, your take on Objetia was bullshit, and here's why. And it's like five you know five hundred pages of of trying to take you down. But but you know, the whole time probably mischaracterizing you from the offset just because they're trying to publish for the sake of publishing because there's a lot of that going on as well. So there's a, anyway, that's my, that's my dunk on, on academia. But the thing I'll say about those clinical structures that we, we can't get into obsessive, hysteric, perverse, and uh, the psychotic is just that um, when, when you have talked about that, that's, that's, that's what you have already said has been given me a lot of traction already with things it, to the point that I would say it was probably these plus the mirror stage and just like maybe three other things that we talked about last time that over time have grown to me being like, yeah, no, I have to read Lacan. I have to read a lot of Lacan. I never really would have thought that. I for years wouldn't have thought that when it comes to theory, I was just, mm, no, no, I'm not going to mess with it. But now I'm like, yeah, well, these are really, these are really useful. But as far as the theory of subjectivity, though, the, this idea of a fundamental fantasy. So if the obsessive, so the, the obsessive is kind of like a sort of default from which other ones are going to, the other ones are going to be sort of, they vary from it in, in, in important ways, right? No, here's the thing. So this is, and a lot of this, right, I'm still working out. That's why even okay. I'm, you know, like I, you know, I need to really refine my understanding of the clinical structures before I can do a lecture on them. But okay. for Lacan, from what I've read, hysteria is actually the primary form of neurosis, and obsession or obsessive neurosis is the modification of it of that structure. So it's bizarre that the obsessive fundamental fantasy is primary. Again, I don't know how they sort all of this out. I, I Trust me, if I ever got a chance to talk to a Lacanian, this would be one of the main topics I want to work on with them because it's hard to find. The closest we have to a systematic layout of the clinical structures is Bruce Fink's book, 
a clinical introduction to Lacanian psychoanalysis. Mm. Lacan, or Zizek does a lot of great stuff with him, but the thing is, he does, he makes these, he'll say something about the pervert on one page, and then 10 pages later, he'll say something about the hysteric. He doesn't just lay out these clinical structures in detail. So what I've been doing is, you know, uh, doing word searches in PDFs, and I'm putting together as many of these quotes as I can into one file, so I can see like I'm trying to get the broad scope of these clinical structures and I'm basically doing the groundwork for a lecture on them, but it's just not ready yet okay fair um, and so the point is though we can we can even leave aside that I just wanted to say that in passing but all of us basically have a fundamental fantasy and what the fundamental fantasy it, it Zizek talks about this again in Plague of Fantasies, and it's his best treatment of fantasy uh, is the first chapter. And he talks about the seven veils of fantasy. So fantasy covers over seven different things, right? Or, or it, 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 it serves as a screen, a buffer, um, misdirection for various things, right? And here I'm only going to touch on the first four. The other ones get they get more into the details of it and you can kind of lose track of what you want to get at the core of what fundamental fantasy does and so here's the thing before we do this i want to say a couple things about the bard s mm. and then we'll talk about the little diamond shape and then we'll do a quick review of obj petita and then we'll go into fantasy because it helps to know what each of those little symbols means before we go into it so I found a good little quote uh, from Sean Homer. And I think this is one of the best summaries or summary definitions of the Lacanian subject, right? <clears throat> so Sean Homer says, The Lacanian subject is, therefore, constituted through two movements. The first corresponds to the process of alienation through language, the second to the separation of desire. Lacan never, however, precisely designates the point at which the subject appears, because it never appears as such. The subject in Lacanian psychoanalysis has no permanence or persistence. Lacan always refers to the subject as arriving or having just arrived, as always too early or too late. There is never a point in time that the subject can be said to finally emerge as a stable and complete entity. It emerges only fleetingly through a continuous process of subjectification, alienation, and separation, rather than at a specific moment in time. Okay, so here's the here's the thing. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, right? Where the subject, the Lacanian subject, the subject of desire, the subject of the unconscious, all of these being the same thing, right? They it manifests itself through formations of the unconscious, through these linguistic nodal points, right? Um, slips of the tongue, a symptom, right? Uh, somebody goes into psychoanalysis because they have a symptom. Well, the symptom is um, a message from the unconscious. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, once the, the, the symptom is decoded and interpreted, uh, the, the idea is that the symptom will then dissolve itself. It's not that you'll ever be symptomless, but that particular symptom as a message will dissolve because the message of it from the unconscious will have been made conscious. And so 
the point is that with the Lacanian subject, it's not like it's a person behind the person. It's all right. It's not like we can go to say to the uh, like conscious, egoic sense of self. Hey, step aside. I want to talk to the other person in you. Right. right. It's not like the analyst can say, "All right, I've talked to the ego enough. Move aside. Now I want to talk for an extended period with the subject." It doesn't work like that at all. The subject is only its manifestations through these formations. Um, it's it's not. It, you can't sit there and talk with the unconscious subject like you do with the ego and I mean of course there's a sense in which it's always there because you never know when a slip of the tongue or a manifestation of the unconscious is going to occur but it's not there in the way that you as a egoic person can sit there and constantly keep talking about yourself um, and so this idea of it it's always just arriving or having just arrived or it just left right it, it, it manifests itself through some form of speech or communication and then it's gone and um, these other aspects of the unconscious like fundamental fantasy it's part of the unconscious right a lot of the times you, you don't have any awareness of any of this right and yet it determines your whole subjectivity and it's similar to like like dark matter right astrophysicists will posit dark matter because you have to posit it to make sense of certain things going on in reality, but you don't perceive the dark matter as such. That's what's going on with the unconscious or the unconscious subject, right? Uh, it make it, it's a hypothesis that makes sense of all this stuff you see in the clinic, but it's not there present, like in this permanent way where you can just talk to the unconscious. It doesn't work that way. So the point, though, is this this unconscious subject emerges through what Lacan calls castration or symbolic castration or in other words when when some external authority steps in and puts limits on your enjoyment now it's as if you've been castrated right you've lost something and some part of you has been castrated now it's not a physical organ it's not a part of your physical body but when language is uh, brought into play, when you have to obey the laws of language and then you have to accept the prohibition that you can't just enjoy yourself however you want, whenever you want, right? All of this works together as, you know, all of the mechanisms for socialization and yet it means something has to be sacrificed. Now, the trick is that you never, you never really gave up anything. There's, there's not an actual physical object or a physical part of your body you gave up. If anything, it's just a kind of like almost just a pure freedom of enjoyment. But the thing is, babies don't live in a constant, you know, eternal bliss. They're always fussing. Sometimes they're happy. Sometimes they're not. Right? They don't have this pure, concentrated enjoyment or jouissance that we take them to have. But once you enter language and once now you you know my behavior has to be mediated through certain customs through certain protocols it's as if we lost an immediate enjoyment that we never really had to begin with but this is what the pro accepting the prohibition involves you know this is what happens with socialization is it's as if you lost some core aspect of your being and that is that that sense of the remainder that that missing uh, chunk of yourself 
that's what he's going to call objet petit a, the, the little a that you see on the board. And so the barred S is the subject of desire. Well, to desire means to lack something. That's why you desire. If you didn't lack the thing, you wouldn't desire the thing. And so the barred subject is the part of you that's desiring, the part of you that's lacking and moving towards that which will uh, complete you. But again, this isn't this isn't the wholeness of the imaginary, right? This this is all going on in the real, at the unconscious level. Even those signifiers and language are part of it, right? Um, th this kind of structure is uh, not one. It's not like you're dealing with images that you identify with here. And so, <clears throat> you are this relation to the lost object. You are the you are the relation. It's not that you're just purely the barred subject. You are the barred subject in relation to the missing part of yourself that you posit at the unconscious level. And it's the very fact that you are this relation that is, in a sense, the Lacanian subject, right? Um, Bruce Fink's famous book on Lacan, the Lacanian subject. You look at the subtitle. It is. Between language and jouissance. So the Lacanian subject is between language and jouissance or enjoyment. So, objet petit a, that little part of yourself that you unconsciously posit that you are missing, it's like a concentrated little chunk of jouissance, of intense enjoyment. And that's what you posit to have been lost in taking on language. And so, it's that thing that's always behind language. Like you, 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 you're searching through language all the time. You're, you're searching through various aspects of society. You're trying to find this thing. Um, and yet you can't find it because it's not a thing that you actually can find. It's not a physical object. Um, and yet this is who you are. This is what you are is your, the relation of your lack to the object that you're lacking. And so that's, the barred subject, the negative subject, right? Um, and so that's the Lacanian subject. <clears throat> what happens though is we're missing this thing. We have this sense like, oh, I, I, I have desire and I come to uh, possess certain things, but nothing does it for me, right? There's always something unsatisfactory about the object of desire. Once you get it, it's not as great as you thought it was going to be because it didn't do to you what you were unconsciously hoping it would do, right? You're still lacking. And so what fundamental fantasy does is it creates a relationship to objet petit a. Like this is, okay, If like that's what fundamental fantasy does is it tells you what you have to be or what kind of scenario there has to be for you to regain this lost object. And so... That brings us up to where I want to talk about the little diamond shape, right? Because the diamond shape is a, a condensation. It's four signs in one. On the one hand, you have the greater than sign, you have the lesser than sign, you have the disjunction sign, and you have the conjunction sign. And so these four signs... Oh, wait. Are the conjunction and the... Wait, wait, what are those other two ones? I know greater and lesser, but what's the... Is it is it like a little, is it kind of like a little pyramid and then upside down pyramid? Is that kind of what we're 
What is out there? Yeah, let me see because I, I have a note here. The uh, the disjunction sign is the little V. It's the bottom. Oh yeah, because it's either or in logic. Is the yeah. yeah okay. So conjunction is the top, the top one. That's conjunction. So, yes. And so what you have is there's within these four different signs, right? Okay, I want to I want to form a union with Obj Petit Ah, or I want to disregard Obj Petit Ah, and somehow it's like letting it go, disregarding it, that you feel like you're going to get it. The greater than is oh, I have to occupy a higher position in society in order to get the objet petit off or oh i have to be very humble and i have to live a certain kind of humble existence to get it right all of these these four signs are different existential attitudes we take up that we think if i'm this way if i have this relation this dynamic i'm going to get it and so those are various ways uh, that we think like oh i this is if i relate myself to it in this way, I will get it. Genius. And Fucking so, genius. And so, okay, but what, what did you say? Okay, so, but okay, so you just explained how those are the four different shapes. But what did you call the diamond again? It's what called you... a lozenge. L O Z E N G E. I don't mean the symbol. I mean, what did you what did you say? This you characterize this as something. The the, the conjunction of these four things is what. Okay, well, well, it's a condensation, right? Because okay, it, condensation. Okay. You're, you're taking four signs and making them into one. Okay. We interrupt this conversation for a quick message from our sponsors. You may recognize this conversation from the past because it is actually a piece of a longer live stream. So what I've done is I've edited the conversations I had with Mikey down into smaller chunks and I will be releasing those serially until the launch of the Slavoj Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do course taught by Michael Downs and myself. I will be asking him the questions and hystericizing him along with a cohort of people who will be joining us live and in the forums as we do a close reading of what Slavoj Zizek claims is his most important theoretical work, more important than sublime objective ideology by far. He said that if you don't have anything to say about for they know not what they do, then keep silent when it comes to sublime objective ideology. But we don't just do close thorough, hardcore readings. We also have some more introductory stuff. And so if you go to theory-underground.com forward slash events, then you'll be able to see the dates of all of the upcoming events. You see that the idea of the university taught by myself, Brian and Anne, a couple of educators who are very close to me. And uh, we wanted to focus on Carl Jasper's short work, The Idea of University, as a way to start the year, but it's also a way for Theory Underground to get off on the right track. The January 25th, is the professional managerial class consciousness course that I'm co-teaching with Elton LK of the Working Class Intelligentsia podcast. And then in February, on the 25th of February, launches Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do. Mikey has spent two decades getting himself to the point where he feels confident enough to teach this book. And I think that that humility and effort that he's put in is something that we can all learn from. I mean, come on. He's like our own homegrown Zizek. He's like our own like national treasure. I think that we really ought to uplift him and give credit where it's due. 
not just take them for granted and act like, you know, we don't need to. So that's a part of the reason actually why I really appreciate Brian Becker from Singularity and Sublimity podcast. He's done a lot of amazing teaching work himself. And then the last thing, I'm doing a countrywide tour this year. I will be on the East Coast, I will be on the West Coast, and I will be everywhere in between. So if you want me to come to your town or city, email me. It's down below. If you want to volunteer, be a part of the street team, host or guide while we're there, let me know. I hope to be in a city near you sometime this year. And I hope that you'll take one of my classes. Thanks.